Every last second of it. Right, we're here today with Simon McNeil Rich then. I'm going to do your little intro, Simon. Good morning, by the way. Oh, good morning, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, are you ready for this? Okay, so today on A Story to Tell, we have author, diplomat, ex-mayor, counsellor, radio DJ, investment manager, fundraiser, (gasps) radio bars co-founder, diplomat... Done that already. And according to a link, according to LinkedIn, mm-hmm. okay, a great professional to have within your team. How much did you pay for that <laughs> quote, by the way? I think I wrote that. I can remember writing that one. <laughs> so we've got Sam McNeil Richie. How are you today? I'm really well, actually. Thank you. I have. In, in a very perverse way, been looking forward to this. It's been a busy uh, couple of weeks, and I've seen this as a sort of happy, if not full stop, because I've still got some work to do tomorrow. But a happy, yeah. a happy comma, happy semicolon okay. in, in, in my in my time. A sort of step out of uh, all the madness that has otherwise been me this week. And how does it feel sitting on that side of the desk? Have you been interviewed that many times? Uh, no, no, not no? at all. No, okay. I, I've done. I did a couple of radio interviews when I was mayor, obviously, you yeah. know, for for various people. But generally, I'm on your side of the desk. So you've not been interviewed as Simon before. You've been interviewed as the mayor. This is a first. This, this is a first. first. How did I get to 62 years and not have somebody asking me lots of questions? But wow. Yeah. yeah well, apart from that interrogation, you know, but, but that's another story. We will talk about that <laughs> as, we, <laughs> as we go forward. Now, it's quite strange. You know, obviously I've had a number of people set on that side of the desk that have been presenters and they all find it quite strange because the weirdest thing is you're not in control. <laughs> I'm not really actually someone who feels the need to be in control. Okay. Um, I do like to be able to influence things and move things forward i get a bit impatient if i can see a way forward and people aren't moving as quickly as i think they might do but i'm not a control freak in that sense so you 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 keep hold of the fader as long as you want <laughs> the nice thing is i can turn him down at any point which is, which is which is quite good you won't be the first person to have turned me down i can tell you well, there we go. um now there's lots to get through today i mentioned mm. in your in your intro that you have done an enormous amount in your 62 years i can say that now because you, you said it first yes. it wasn't me saying that yeah. uh, that in there but we're going to talk about you first of all being a diplomat for many years so mm. for people that aren't aware what is a diplomat yeah, well, I don't even know myself. It says first secretary as your in your link. Yeah, that's just a rank within the diplomatic service. So particularly okay. when you're overseas in an embassy, so it would be a sort of middle ranking one. It's what you'd be if you were in your early thirties, which is what I was at the time. Um, and above that, you then have councillor, which is head of a particular section within an embassy. So it might be the political section, the economic section, the uh, the commercial section, um, and then you have ambassador above that. Okay. And so you were a diplomat. I was a diplomat. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And whereabouts in the world? I'm guessing you must have travelled a little bit with that then. I was very lucky, actually. I, I, I got a posting for four and a half years to Japan. Okay. Yeah, and that included language training. And I think one of the things that Britain has always done very well is it invested in language training and, and similar for its diplomats, which means that we're just a little bit more able to get under the skin of a country and build relations that uh, other countries don't have the opportunity to do. Okay. So you're in Japan for four and a half years. Uh-huh. Now, my wife speaks, or she did Japanese, and she hates it when anybody says, because it's kind of an unusual thing, yeah. you speak Japanese, yeah. hey, speak some Japanese, and therefore, she yeah. doesn't always do it that often, yeah. okay? Are you similar in that vein? Uh, no, I don't mind it. My, it's been 30 years since I spoke Japanese right. properly, so it's very rusty, but I do know it's sort of bits and pieces are there. I, I, my, my mind grabs for them every time I try and speak a foreign language. It's, it's mixed up with some Japanese. I work so hard to, to learn the language. It's, yeah. it's such a difficult language. I, I have seen some 
some of her work and it yeah. was incredible that all the writing and yeah. everything around it is just completely we learned to read and write as well as speak so right. so it was a it was a pretty intense year yes and it's a bit the same again she ex- she explains when she went over there for a year that the you know you feel like you know the language and then mm. then you go there and then everybody start, starts speaking and they're speaking incredibly quickly yeah uh, we do the same i mean i, I learned uh, some spanish at one stage i was over in ecuador learning spanish for the foreign office right and uh, at one stage I, I met up with somebody who didn't speak much spanish and i spoke english to them in front of uh, uh, one of the family that i was staying with and they just froze they said we, d- we didn't realize that you spoke english so quickly right so i think it's true of everybody who's learning a language it's uh, when it gets up to speed it's really quite difficult yeah. and the thing with japanese is they have so many layers of, okay it's one of the languages where it's actually easier to make yourself understood than to understand what's being said to you okay because they have they will they will change their language according to how they feel you and they relate um, whether you know you're more senior or, or more junior or, or whatever um, and so you get the same information but in totally different language in totally different words okay so uh, sticking to a neutral one you can just um, just get your side across and hope you can pick up enough of whatever they come back to you with now my wife has just messaged in she just said it's the writing that's the hardest part I like well. the writing actually okay. um, I, I yes I mean she probably I mean she is right on that side uh, but I think if you're not a native speaker the the whole language is, is quite a challenge to be honest at least with the with the um, kanji you get a chance to look at them and uh, there are there are clues within those about what they mean and how they're pronounced yeah. so, you know so it's uh, but there are about uh, children uh, 1850 is that right 1850 characters that you need to learn I've no to read idea. a newspaper yeah I, now very sadly for me I've always had the opinion and whether this is right or wrong and I made this choice when I was 13 years old and I had the option of taking French and carrying it on or not and my theory is that I'd rather put my efforts into maths and physics which I'd like to think I'm not too bad at rather than learning lots of different languages just in case I might visit that country when everybody pretty much speaks English again there's something in that but I think uh, Japan is one of those countries where certainly when I was Mm. there 30 years ago uh, there were no signs in Romanized letters so right. nothing that you could it's all written in various types of japanese uh, alphabets uh, so if you couldn't read those you didn't know where you were yeah um so it was a lot and i've got a, a, my my father decided on his visit to us that he was going to go out on the last day and i gave him a list of my name telephone number in both uh, languages and i gave him directions etc etc and needless to say he tried to go through shinjuku station on the way back shinjuku station gets about three million people every day through wow. it okay. and he was traveling on his own and uh, we had to get to the airport and he was late getting back my mother was in tears uh, and i said we've got to go we've got to go so we got into the uh, embassy vehicle we were heading off and this little fellow came trotting down the, the little Japanese high street where I was living and we opened the side door of the of the thing and we dragged him in and uh, and he had he'd, he'd been trying to say how do I get to Akabonabashi which means sort of like a dawn or sunrise bridge very beautiful right. but he'd been saying Abakabonabashi or something like that and of course it was garbage to the Japanese so he just yeah. he wasn't getting anywhere we made him pay for beers at the airport which was a real penalty I can tell you for a Scot that was that hurt did it yeah 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 Fair enough. Mm. Um, now, we've mentioned it being Japan, mm-hmm. Ecuador. How did you actually get to become a diplomat in the first place? I went straight from university. Right. Um, yeah, uh, at that time, and I imagine it's pretty similar now, uh, one of the things you do when you're looking, uh, talking to the careers people is you put yourself up for various civil service uh, jobs, and it means you go, go through an initial exam. And then if you get through that, we had three days of exams okay. and interviews and all sorts of other things. Uh, one of the funny things I remember from that, is, and it seems so preposterous now, I remember as a little, a little sort of... Uh, 
general knowledge test they gave us, which was a bit of light relief compared to all the other stuff that we were having to do. And in that, I still remember being asked to put five aristocratic titles in order of seniority. And I, I think that probably reflects where the Foreign Office was okay. still at that time. So, so this is a couple of years ago now, okay? <laughs> more, yeah, more than a couple. Yeah, yeah. More than a couple of years ago. So can you still remember those five aristocratic... Yeah, things? I don't think I got them right the first time. Okay. I mean, <laughs> so they, you, know, you had things like Viscount and Duke and Earl and uh, Lord and, and probably another one. Okay. Yeah. And we just had to rank them, and I thought, this is strange. But uh, yeah, but that's kind of the mind process of the hierarchy of all the I think it reflected across. where they expected most of their recruits to come from. The fact that yeah. I came from a Scottish university, I think they just let me in because they, I had a, my mother's BBC accent. So they thought, oh, here's someone from Scotland we can actually understand. That ticks a box. Okay, so <laughs> let's go there. So you're from Scotland originally then, because yep. the name McNeil Ritchie. And McNeil Ritchie, yes. But you said it in a beautiful Scottish accent rather than my horrific <laughs> pretend Scottish accent. Yeah, I'm with your wife on these, by the way. Fair <laughs> <laughs> enough. Uh, but you don't sound Scottish. No, well, I lived in England for a while before we moved back up to Scotland. My father went back. He was from Edinburgh and he went, we went back up to Scotland because of the oil. And he worked at Grangemouth at BP. And uh, I lived I did part of my primary school, all of my uh, higher education up in Scotland and went to university there. Um, I never really had a strong, strong accent, partly because we moved around a lot. I, I went through seven schools in three years. Uh, and that probably influenced me in other ways, you know, sort of yeah. being quite adaptable, independent. Um, <clears throat> and so I didn't really sort of settle. And, of course, since then, I've spent, uh, what, 40 years away from Scotland, so... Yeah. Now, somebody who was on here not too long ago, the lovely Dot, yes. one of my favourite people in the world. She I is listened, Scottish yeah. and uh, love her to bits. Yeah. And yeah, I mentioned at the time that when she went back up to Scotland, she came back down yeah. and her Scottish accent was quite strong after mm. that. So even though you have an English accent now, yeah. when you go back up, does it kind of, the Scot come out? It you? comes out. It's still quite soft, but it's noticeably, it's a choice of, it's both a softer accent and certain words. I will use I a lot or we, you know, as in small. Uh, I'm going back up tomorrow, actually. I Ask me why I'm going up tomorrow. Simon, why are you going back up to Scotland tomorrow? Funny you should ask me that. Uh, I'm going up to Glasgow to see Shania Twain. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going, and I'm going with uh, my partner and her daughter, and she's come from uh, uh, deep South America, now working up in Newcastle. So, you're talking about accent. You can imagine what that's done to her. I'm yeah. slightly confused, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. So, she's from, where's she from? She, she went to school and, and worked initially in uh, Arkansas. Right. And then when uh, they moved over here, she moved into Newcastle, where she works. Okay. So she's got a bit of a Newcastle accent going now. Uh, and we're taking her up to Glasgow just to complete what will be a, a, a terrible cocktail of accents. Yeah, that will be unusual for everybody. Yeah. And, and Shania Twain, she's, mm. I didn't even know she was still going around. If oh, where thinking. have you been this year? She's everywhere. Is she? Well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so uh, people have been getting their uh, leopard skin boots and their pink Stetsons ready. Not for me, I hasten to add. Well, that was my question. <laughs> Walking down Socky Hall Street can be a bit of an, ex uh, an experience at the best of times, but I certainly don't want to invite too much attention. <laughs> now, we're going to go back to you being a diplomat. So yeah. you've been Japan, you've mm -hmm. been Ecuador. Where else did you get to then? So I came back from Japan and I was a sort of desk officer for the former Soviet Union as it broke up. So this was 91, 92, 93. And I remember one of the big tasks I had there was opening up embassies in different parts of the new republics. The first one being Kiev, of course. Right. And I spent a lot of time opening, uh, you know, from London, London, helping to open up the uh, the embassy in Kiev, uh, so I, I, it's brought a lot of thoughts back with uh, all the troubles that they're currently going through. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. obviously a very difficult situation out there right now. Yeah, and then I had a f I had a fabulous job for about three years where I travelled to Rio de Janeiro 
uh, for a week and then 10 days around the Caribbean um, in every six week period. Um, and having done that for three years, I thought, oh, I'm getting a bit bored. I don't want to go to uh, Montserrat again, you know, or, yeah. or Rio. So I, I thought, uh, if you're getting bored with that, Simon, you really need to do something different. I, I mean, it's it's a strange thing, isn't it? So <laughs> it does sound glamorous, but it's a lot of time on a plane. Mm. And there's only, you know, there's only so many palm trees you can see, surely. So, only so many beaches you can lie on yeah. and cocktails you can drink. Yeah. I, did, I did my best. I did my best. I don't think I let the side down on that front. You've done all right, Alan. I have. Now, there's something quite famous in a lot of films and everything which is called the diplomatic community card yes okay so you're allowed to theoretically do something wrong and you pull that card out i'm going to ask the question live on radio did you use your card at get all my, get out of jail card yeah no i didn't and the, and the reason for that is we don't actually carry a card okay okay but we do have diplomatic immunity however the ambassador and and the powers that be have the ability to waive that so if i did something Highness, okay. uh, uh, then then they could wave it. There are. I remember when I was first working in London, there was a Nigerian diplomat who had set a record for a thousand parking tickets in the centre of London in a year. Wow, that takes some going. That's three a day. That is, yeah. yeah um, uh, so we did ask for him to be removed, but um, theoretically he had immunity. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, now, you did it for 14 years. How yeah. much in that time? So it was from 80... 87 to... Uh, sorry, 80, 84 to 98. Now, the world changed in qu- quite a big way in mm. that period. So h- how did being a diplomat change y- for yourself? It's int- that's a good, really good question, too, because it was something that was playing on my mind. Because uh, partly I left because I was doing a part-time MBA with a view to getting some of those private sector uh, disciplines into uh, the, the public sector and, and managing foreign office in a modern modern way and um uh so that was one reason i realized i wasn't going to be able to change the foreign office as quickly as i thought so i had to it was me that had to change so i had to go uh but in that time i began to sort of notice that when i first went to japan there were people there who previously had sailed to japan that was what that was the custom to sail for six weeks we now of course flew but what with um technology and i think a, a greater interest in foreign affairs by Margaret Thatcher and, and subsequent premiers, uh, it meant that not even the foreign secretary was the number one when it came to foreign affairs. And ambassadors, we still had a lot to offer, but most decisions could be referred back to London for immediate mm. decision. Um, and, and so I think I felt that it wasn't what it had used to be, where, where, where you needed experienced people to a certain extent taking decisions autonomously yeah. uh, and, and, and getting it right. Because I suppose on a day-to-day basis, people aren't aware what a diplomat would do good we'll keep it that way shall we (laughs) (laughs) well obviously there's a lot of lot of canapes to be got through yeah um and and paper cuts i mean it's a dangerous job um but basically what we do is i had a i had a reporting brief i was reporting on a range of commercial things uh economic matters such as japanese policy on energy uh, which was very important japan at the time in the 80s was seen to be the next huge economy um much bigger than even china is now Uh, and it was only when the bubble burst in the uh, end of the 80s early 90s that Mm. uh, things slowed down a bit so japan there was a lot of interest in japan both economically we were we were sort of almost in competition well we were in competition we were almost sort of fighting with people like the french and other countries to have inward investment that was the big thing we were working on so you're kind of like the the go-between i suppose between Mm. the governments to some degree is that would that be fair yeah we were sort of um representing uh, british policies to the japanese government but we were also dealing with uh, japanese businesses and encouraging them to see uh, britain as a place to invest that was the time when we had the hondas and the toyotas and the uh, fujitsus all coming to uh 
to Britain um, and we were making the case for Britain as a place to base their European operations. That's fascinating to hear because I was listening to a brilliant interview um, about uh, with Rory Stewart mm-hmm. who w- was an MP yeah. and he's been very open in a book that he's just released about how little the actual MPs know when they go into their individual posts. Yeah. Um, so that's not me saying that. Yeah. That's actually what he was saying and that you can have five different foreign secretaries and you go in on day one and theoretically you should know it all but actually you know very little and it's a civil service that pretty much run the show. I don't know how accurate that would be. I, th- I think it's fair to say that the civil service is, is the uh, repository of a lot of knowledge and, there, and, a, and a good politician will tap into that. They are the ones that are in charge. They, they, will, they will direct uh, the civil servants and the civil servants are you know, politically neutral and, yeah. and, and tend to do what they uh, are expected to do. They will try and help ministers avoid you know, obvious problems uh but at the end of the day they they'll do what they are directed it's more a question of uh, influencing and and bringing you know things to the attention of the minister if you think about it grant shapps hmm. our defense secretary has had five cabinet jobs this year <laughs> so you know any any humble ordinary modest human being would realize they don't have all the on- answers if they've only been in post no. for about 66 days absolutely it's, yeah, it's almost an impossible situation for them to be in well yeah. we're gonna have a little break for the adverts uh, when we come back we're going to be talking about fundraising so Ooh. back with simon after this the Nursery Hilperton, proud sponsor of the morning show. So there's Breakout Sister, Breakout Sister, Breakout by Swing Out Sister. Simon, tell us why we played that song. When I first went to Japan and I was studying uh, on my own in a little village in Japan, I went up to a place called Akihabara, known as Electric City uh, in Tokyo, and I bought all the latest gizmos and gadgets. I think they were called CDs in those days. CDs, which we don't even use anymore. We didn't have them actually in Britain at that time. So I bought all this stuff and I got it back to my little place and uh, I realised I hadn't bought a CD. So I had some fantastic speakers and mixers and all that sort of stuff but no CD and uh, a colleague of mine a friend of mine in the embassy went out and got me a CD and uh, sent it to me to keep me going on my next visit to Tokyo and it was this album which had come out the previous year and I played this in loop uh, for hours and hours every day every week so swing out sister and break break out out. yeah every day (laughs) just what you want we're going to move on to your fundraising that you've been doing so um so yeah you fundraise for the armed forces charity what's the name of that charity again so it's SAFA soldiers sailors airmen and families association uh it's the oldest uh tri-service uh charity in the country goes back to 1885 and we have all sorts of services that we provide for veterans and their families and indeed serving personnel Uh, and part of what we have is on the ground we have uh, thousands of volunteers who are often the first port of call for a veteran or a family who have got a problem. And that problem could be anything, could be financial, could be mental health, uh, could be homelessness, etc. And they will go in and uh, they will then uh, uh, either try and solve the problem or they will uh, uh, signpost them to people who are better qualified. Now, for me, this is quite fascinating. When I was researching your, some people call it stalking. Um, <laughs> I've got the injunction here, by the way. <laughs> That's why you're that side of the desk and not this side. Um, is that I'm ex-military myself, so I'm mm. ex-RAF, and I didn't actually know about the charity. No, and and uh, we are uh, sometimes you say we're the best kept secret. I think that just means our marketing's failed. Mm. Um, but uh, we, yeah, we 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 we're, we're everywhere uh, in the UK. We're also overseas. We've been in Germany, Cyprus, etc. Uh, and I think a lot of people in the services do know, but I don't think many people in the general public will know about us. No, no, I just ha- I mean it's a long twenty years since I left, mm. but um, but yeah, I just hadn't. Even they want their plane back, by the way. 
Well, there are certain things that we can't talk about, which I, I won't go into that now. Um, but why did you choose that charity? Is that the only charity you do stuff for? Uh, no, I've, I've sort of worked with charities generally. I set up my own charities, in, and Radio Bath is a charity, mm. as you know. So uh, when, I, when I left the Foreign Office, I did an MBA, as I said, and then I went into the city, and I had eight years or so floating companies in the stock market and or managing them if they were in, in problem. On that, yeah. so when I was looking at, again, mm. stalking mm. you... Um, part of it came up about the companies that you theoretically owned or been a director of yeah. uh, that was a long list it was a long list wasn't it a really yeah. long list yeah. yeah and and you know so that was a that was a good experience but uh i i've never really been and this is this is in some ways a weakness i think it's a good thing but in some ways a weakness. i've never really been motivated by money if i had been i think my career would have gone in a different direction so after about um eight years or so in the city i decided i wanted to sort of take the disciplines of the pub of the private sector but the ethos of the public sector and social enterprise was the thing that was emerging at that time so i started to create social enterprises uh, uh not for profit i hate that term by the way but not for profits that um help solve a problem in the in the community uh but are able to generate enough income one way or another to sustain themselves without having to go around with a begging bowl all the time so explain the not-for-profit then so uh if i take an example uh a really good company that i was uh, a consultant to for a little while is fair share people may have heard of that now but basically what that does is there's uh, waste food not not out of date food it's just uh they've got more promotions hmm. coming from supermarkets that would normally go to landfill and they would pay 38 pounds a, a ton or something for that instead they can take it to fair share um, who suddenly have hundreds of packets of cornflakes for instance all, all good food and they break it down into small boxes and mix it with other foodstuffs and then they're able to supply local charities who feed the homeless or the people who are hungry with it and um, they charge the supermarket only about half of what it would cost them for landfill so it works for everybody yeah um, and I like those sorts of uh, businesses so it's it's avoiding landfill it's feeding the, the, the people who need food and it's paying for itself as it goes along okay Amazing. Um, now, if anybody does want to ask any questions for Simon, by the way, it's studioradiobath.com, or you can text BATH, followed by your message, to 80011. We've had a question in just very quickly from my wife, who is our, our primary listener today, by the sounds of it. <laughs> so um, just going back to the Japanese part of it. So she says, what's Simon's favourite karaoke song, and how many karaoke bars did he go to in Japan? I went to, I think, two of them, and I hate karaoke. Okay. <laughs> because I just don't have the... My, I, my singing voice is in a totally different key to everything else karaoke was a bit of my bane of my life i'm afraid okay. but i did have a friend um glenn who was uh, a scottish rather trained and he was fluent in japanese anyway because he had a japanese wife and lived there and he used to sing karaoke songs all the time and i used to just sit there drinking my sipping my whiskey while he uh, entertained the crowd fair enough a yeah. scotsman drinking whiskey in japan what are the chances of that what are the chances? Um, but, so, yeah, any questions, please do message them in. Um, going back to the charity stuff then, so what type of things have you done for charity? For charity. So uh, I set up a charity that uh, tackled long-term homelessness using franchising. One of the skills I learned when I was in the private sector was franchising. Okay. Uh, and I came up with the idea, well, I didn't come up with the idea of social franchising, but I came up with a model that it, it's social franchising. So explain what social franchising is. Well, basically is, is, I mean, we've created a radio bath here. Yeah. Okay. This provides what we hope is a community service. Somebody in, say, Hull might want to do the same thing. Instead of going through the same learning curve that we have, if we get this working well, we'll be able to package this up and say 
to Hull. Here, this is how we did it. Mm-hmm. You might want to do it. So it's it's replicating the best practices all around the, the country, but for these uh, sort of social and public purposes rather than profit. Okay, because I mean, I run a franchise myself in mm. the dance world, mm. um, and it's kind of we have our headquarters, and they say supply certain things, but each individual place is still its own individual place. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think there's a lot of things that we've learned about Radio Bath, for instance, about how you set it up, how you appeal to uh, to get the support that you need, how you get the premises, etc. Uh, and uh, uh, you can then really accelerate someone else's journey by, by getting them to follow pretty much what you've done. Yeah. But as you say, just accommodating some local... Uh, nuances okay so for charity itself you've uh-huh. set up some local franchises effectively mm-hmm. in that aspect yeah. have you done some swimming some cycling some running What's i have done those i don't recall doing any swimming i tell you one thing i've done oh. um <laughs> i set a world record for crawling for craw- okay go on tell okay. us about this so i was 18 it was probably my first uh, excursion i'd worked for charities before but this was the first fundraiser and uh, three of us decided we were going to do something in the last term of our school where we finished all the exams and we hit upon crawling and uh, yeah one day i set out in the rain as, as is often the case in scotland it was june after all and um, i crawled for nearly 13 miles at the time you uh, crawled for 13 hands miles and knees, yeah how long did that take? Uh, about 14 hours. Um, and the worst thing was that we hadn't a clue, as usual, 18-year-olds, you know, what do we know about anything? And uh, the day before, we'd cut up some rubber tyres to put on our knees, and then we'd sort of tied them to the back of our knees. But because it was raining, the, the rubber tyres would fill up with water as we crawled around, and every time we pushed down on the, on, the, on the rubber, we just forced water between the rubber and our knees. So after the first mile, we had no skin on our knees. It was that sort of bloodied water mess. Yeah. Uh, so we had to bandage ourselves up and in fact actually the, the other two stopped quite quickly after that and i just plowed on um, so, so you were definitely i mean one of the questions i was going to ask about being a diplomat is some of the skills that you require but resilience i'm guessing is one of those crawling is very things. important if you're a diplomat i can tell you you have to crawl. <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking more of the resilience okay, side yes, of it, yeah. But, yeah but yeah, I, th- I think actually in some ways, if I look back and say, I mean, there are lots of things I've done, and I might be reasonably proud, but certainly at the time of having done them, they sort of fade a little bit in time. But I think probably the thing about me that I'm proudest of in some way is is the resilience, is, hmm. is the ability to keep going at quite a high pace, quite stressful for a long period of time. And I don't think I get away with it. I think it takes its toll in various ways, but I, I'm able to sort of push through um, uh, quite a long way. There are only so many plates you can spin. Absolutely. And uh, at some point, some of those plates will come down. Yeah. He says, saying from personal experience. <laughs> um, but I've done some cycling. I've cycled. I've done the Bath to Paris, London to Paris. I've cycled from Kent to Scotland on my own over a week, uh, raising money. Um, and now I'm thinking of more and more creative ways of raising money for, for SAFA, the Armed Forces Charity. Okay, well, well, as I've mentioned many times, next year for my 50th, I am doing a skydive. Excellent. Um, for the uh, Southwest children's hospice okay um would you like to join me I, i've done one of those before and i i love them i'm i'm certainly happy to do something like okay. that yeah okay so maybe I'm we like, can I, do it together yeah maybe we, well, well let's do it together do i have to do it for the hospice i suppose no, I no, do. okay no, maybe i could do it for safa you can do it for safa absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah i'm just doing it for the hospice because yeah. that's what i'm doing but Shall, yeah. does that does it mean when we go down we're sort of holding hands and staring into each other's eyes there as are we? many times <laughs> we could do that simon <laughs> I'm up for anything if it, if it raises money for charity. <laughs> 
Um, you recently had a golf tournament at Cumberwell as I well. Did, How yeah, did that, that go? Last Thursday. It was very well, actually. It was the first time we'd run it. It was a very last-minute thing. It went off extremely smoothly. We've raised uh, nearly £3,000 for Safa, which is a, a nice bit. And, and, and just as importantly, I learned a lot from that, and I'm now planning an even bigger and better event next year. In fact, several of them. So uh, first time round, I think, with these things, you put three times as much effort in for about a third of the return. Yep. Second time is when you can really leverage that knowledge, a bit like franchising. And is it another golf tournament? I'm asking that on a I'm going to be doing level. lots of things. So I'm going to be doing a cycling tournament okay. next year. Uh, I'm looking to do a golf tournament next year. Uh, and there are all sorts, of, all sorts of things that we're doing. Well, if you need anybody for golf, I'm, I'm sure I could take a day off and, uh, and have, a, have a play round. Get yourself three people, make a team, okay? Yep, and we'll um, we'll get you into it. We'll have a go. That <laughs> sounds good. Uh, if anybody else wants to include themselves in some of your mm-hmm. charity things, how would they get involved with that? Well, it's a, uh, they can probably the easiest in some ways is just get in touch with here because it's Simon at RadioBath.com. My uh, email address for Saffa is a uh, is Simon Ritchie at Saffa.org.uk. A catchy title, I think. Very you'll easy find. to remember. Yeah. So let's Simon go. at RadioBath.com. We'll go with that one, <laughs> shall we? We'll go with that one. So if anybody wants to get involved, do email Simon at Radio bath.com can have another little break for music when we come back we're going to talk all about being a counselor and being a mayor as well Katie Perry and Raw. We're back with Simon for the second hour. How was the first hour for you, Simon? It was great. It was great. I'm feeling very relaxed now, very Are chilled. Are you? Lots of people say I make them relax. I don't yeah. know why that is. But, uh, maybe it's just the fact that I'm lounging back on the chair. I'll have to sit up now to, to talk into the mic because I'm just sort of just on the floor there, just rolling around, just sort of getting comfortable. <laughs> Right, we're going to talk about the fact of being a councillor and mayor of Bradford-on-Avon. Mm. So, what is your current situation then? So, I'm a town councillor. Um, okay. We have four-year terms, and uh, there was another election in 21, so I'm halfway through the second term uh, as town councillor. And do you represent any party at all? Uh, no, uh, we, we're the independent party, and we're, we're going to be more... Uh, we have to... The way it's set up is ridiculous. You almost have to be a party to take part in politics. And since my whole principle is I don't like the party system, it's a bit galling, frankly. Yeah. Um, w- one of the things I felt was uh, to be an independent, uh, and I was asked by some of the parties to join beforehand, was that uh, I don't really see the need for party politics, particularly at ground level, at mm. town level, uh, to be honest. Uh, I think the job there is all about getting things done. And they're not particularly political or ideological, you know, getting... Uh, things sorted out and pavements and roads and stuff or trying to get them done uh, it doesn't require party politics and what I've noticed is that uh, often uh, parties uh, really fight an election very hard to try and win a seat and then occupy that seat having deprived the opposition of it and, and they just sit on it for four years and, and they may or may not do um, very much with it uh, but winning the seat is all important for me it was about what you then do with yeah. when you've got that um, uh, authority Okay. Now, obviously, we're not a political station. We won't be going down any political routes whatsoever today. I'd like to point that out very, very quickly. Um, But... Was it harder to be elected as an independent rather than being part of a yeah, party? Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, there's no machine for doing it, so you have to, you know, you have to c- create your own literature. You have to register various things. You have to make sure that you do all the returns properly. That's already been done for the uh, for the uh, uh, people who are members of party. And there are costs involved, and those are usually met 
by the other party's central fund. So we had to pay to meet those costs ourselves. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, it is harder. And it's particularly harder. It gets harder as you go further up the uh, political ladder. Now, again, if anybody does have any questions for Simon, it's uh, text Bath followed by your message to 80011 or studio at radiobath.com. You can ask him anything, if I'm honest with you. You yeah. can ask me anything, yes. Yeah, whether he'll answer or not is another, <laughs> is another matter. Um, being a councillor, it, it can't be that easy. So, kind of what are the main challenges of being a councillor? Well, it was when, when we had a majority in the first four years, it was all about doing all the things that we had said that the town needed. So, it was very active and we took on a, a lot of work. Uh, unfortunately, in this, in this second term, uh, we are in the minority, so we don't get very much uh, chance to lead very, uh, very many initiatives. Uh, our role in some ways is more to try and help the, uh, the, the majority party uh, shape their uh, plans um, more efficiently, more effectively if we can. But it all comes down to uh, influence rather than action. Uh, now, I know a chap called Steve. Okay, so Steve's a local resident of Bradford and Avon. His, his surname might be Fountain, but we'll, we'll work that out on another occasion. His car's okay? marked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. How, how, as a councillor, do you kind of stay connected to Steve? Uh, it's a very good question, actually. Well, first of all, we, we're, we're elected, and uh, as, as independents, uh, I would say that we're coming from that pool of people uh, rather than from a party uh, organization uh, but we spend a lot of time communicating uh, we can never communicate enough uh, that's the basic tenet of life and I, I find that with all sorts of other things yeah. as well uh, you can you can send stuff out by paper you can send stuff out on websites so you can email you can do all sorts of things and we have done more and more of that and you'll still get people say well I didn't know about it hmm. um, and, and they possibly didn't know about it but there's, there's, uh, there's only so much that we can go to um, getting things in front of people but I think people do have also a, a, a it's a slightly mysterious or mystical um, uh, idea of what being a councillor is, a sort of smoke-filled back room sort of thing, which uh, it certainly isn't. So tell us a true story, then, of what being a councillor at Bradford and Avon is like, then. Well, uh, there are uh, meetings every every week, just about, so you've got two or three-hour meeting most Tuesday nights, um, and then when, w when we were moving things forward, there'd be a lot of... Uh, uh, you know, so for instance, a skate park was something that we mm. started. Um, that that took an enormous amount of effort because uh, you have to get all of that support behind it. There's lots of planning permissions there. You need to work out who's going to pay for it all, and that was a lovely that was a lovely uh, combination of the council basically saying, "Well, look, we'll put up X amount." Um, but the community needs to find the balance. Okay. And one of the things we found, uh, uh, because we knew we were going to be taking on more and more responsibility, because central government and even uh, county councils don't have the funds to do stuff, is we needed to find ways where there were partnerships between the council and, and the public. So we, we put money in together but also people so we've created teams of volunteers who do things which frankly if we had to pay for in town uh, would be unaffordable so there's a great organization we set up called club clean up bradford okay. um, uh, there are about eight to twelve volunteers led by derek and uh, they do a fantastic job they go out every monday and they choose a particular part of pavement or road which is a bit weeded or something and they they clean it up and they keep on top of of the uh, of the central areas that way again if we had to pay for that it would be uh, you know we just see our precept our, our taxis go straight up now Bradford is an incredibly picturesque place mm. people visit there on holiday um, and it and it is an amazing place to be um, you are part of the council of that mm -hmm. okay and we mentioned earlier that you are 62 years young now I've been to a few council meetings so I've 
I run an event at St. Margaret's Hall every yep. Monday as part of our dancing, and that got redeveloped a number of years ago, and part of that I kind of had the pleasure of being part of a number of council meetings and other working groups as well. Um, as a 62-year-old, you're going to be one of the, shall we say, less mature people in the council. I don't know if that's fair these days or not. Well, well actually, what was very interesting is that when we had this sort of um, sea change in 2017 where the independents got in, the average age, I think, of us, I was one of the oldest. Right. Uh, and our other fellow presenter, Dave Garwood, who was also the first mayor of, under the new regime, um, uh, he was definitely the oldest. So we had... Um, most people were in their 30s and 40s. And one of the things we've had to sort of... You know, get council, the, the council officers to understand, and, and those uh, councillors who are retired is that many of us now have jobs. We're of working yeah. age, and of course, I've gone back and got myself a job as well. So, you know, it's no longer easy to have that meeting at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon or, or, or 11 o'clock on a Friday morning. So the dynamics have now changed, have they? Because most people have an image of council meetings being people in their 80s kind of making decisions that were based around Victorian era th- thought When process. they were born, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't quite say that. Um, but it's, it's different now, you're saying? Uh, it is. We've got a, we've got a, a much younger cohort of people, um, uh, ranging from, I think, uh, early 30s through to, yeah, we've got one or two people in the 70s, certainly. But when, when we uh, came in in 2017, I think the oldest member of council was like 84 or 85. Yeah. And, and in all fairness to them, a lot of people do that because no one else is and at the time before that no one was pushing to become a town councillor we no. we used to have to co-op people uh what one of the things i'm most proud of in in, in bradford and even in terms of the town council side and democracy is that at the last election for 12 places we had 27 candidates amazing yeah absolutely amazing um now that's being a councillor you were also mayor of bradford i was yes how was that for you i I was told i'd have chain envy uh, and i was right because we have a lovely little chain that goes around your neck when you're mayor but it's nothing compared to what i used to go and see people so lorraine so lorraine was mayor of bath are you saying lorraine's chain was bigger than yours chain collar gown and they had the tricorn or the bicorn hat etc the the stole the fluffy cravats etc we had none of that Ah. i used to turn up for things i had a motorbike at the time still do in fact and um i used to go over to places like Malmesbury to represent uh, Bradford Navon or whatever Malmesbury were doing or, or, or Westbury and things like that and uh, it was often on a Sunday so the public transport wasn't the easiest so I'd get on my motorbike in my leathers um, and I'd arrive at Malmesbury and in the car park I would change out of my leathers and uh, put on a suit and just throw the chain over my neck and hey presto I was done and there you were and I'm loving the way you're saying leathers leathers <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So how did you become mayor of BOA then? It's basically uh, you're, you're elected by the other councillors and, and therefore if you have, if you're part of what is then the majority group, then uh, almost certainly you're going to be, uh, you, you know, you're one of the uh, councillors from that group will be mayor. Uh, so I was elected in 2019, so it was a third of the independent mayors and it just so happened at the end of it we, we dropped into COVID. Uh, again, one of the things I was quite, um, pleased about was was anticipating that and holding an emergency meeting before we were locked down so we were quite well prepared when uh, as, as as any town can be given the fact we only have limited powers uh, and then because it was covid i was asked to stay on for a second year because frankly there was not much that uh, anyone else could do no. um, so two very different experiences um, in the first one i motorcycled to germany um, as mayor, um, uh, which was a, a great adventure. Um, and in the second one, it was all about lockdown and what we can do to protect.
protect uh, you know protect the people. And it must have been incredibly difficult because information that was around was very limited, and, and mm-hmm. we'd never been through this before. So, you know, I'm sure if we had to go through this again, people would make a lot of different decisions. I would hope so. There was, and certainly, there'd be missed opportunities in my view as well about uh, things we could have done to the infrastructure. But uh, what we done as a sort of precursor it wasn't intended to be a precursor to radio bath we set up west wilts radio in bradford on avon so we're about a year ahead on on that one and west wilts radio was one of only four community radio stations around the country that was given a special license from ofcom to go on broadcasting during covid because they recognized and we argued that it was a way of getting local information out to people people mm-hmm. who are in isolated communities or you know as you say there wasn't a lot of information in the first few weeks no absolutely not well a lovely segue you've put in <laughs> it took me a long time, by the way, to realise that the word segue in radio terms is actually a joining thing and spelt different to the segue that you ride. So I, I didn't <laughs> Don't know get them confused. No, so I'm not getting on my little two-wheel thing and going about the place. But uh, we are going to talk about being a radio DJ and Radio Bath right after this. Tension by Kylie Minogue. I believe that's her latest track. I believe so. I'm right up to date with all the current music at the moment. I really am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're back with Simon, who uh, we're now going to talk about Radio Bath and being a DJ itself. And again, it's quite strange for yourself being on the other side of the uh, the desk. But you're also one of the co-founders of Radio Bath. So I interviewed Steve. He kind of does the radio side of things. Interviewed Lorraine. She's more of the event side of it. So pe- many people will be wondering what. What do you do, Simon? Uh, not, not least me, actually, to be <laughs> honest. Um, what I've found with almost everything I've got involved in is that I can be a catalyst for things, and then my role changes and adapts to whatever is not being done by the other sort of founders that's been in business as well. Um, I think the to go back to the beginning, uh, Steve and I were at that for aforementioned West Wilts radio station, uh, and we were talking, and he told me about his role at GD. GWR and, and how he really missed it, how he'd like to have a, one, uh, a radio station back in Bath. Uh, and I was, I, I said what I always say, let's just do it. Hmm. Um, and then when he asked me the same question a week later, I said, well, let's just do it. So he introduced me to Lorraine because they had been talking over the years because um, they knew each other of old. And uh, we decided to do it. Uh, we were very lucky because, uh, first of all, we had to change the model. There was no way it was going to work commercially, so it had to work on a voluntary basis. Because how much does it cost to run a commercial radio station on average? Well, um, you could probably, you could probably, without the people, you could probably run this for about a hundred thousand okay. pounds. Um, although I suspect it would be actually no, it would be more than that um, uh, because we get given things as a charity which you'd have to pay for. I think the main thing, the sort of radio station we wanted to create, was one for Bath, about a local one, and that meant having people involved because, of course, you had to go and get that news, get those stories, then you had to present them. So it was going to be people intensive, and I think there's a reason why so many commercial radio stations now just play music and, mm. and have very little interaction because it's cheaper. Um, and, and that just wasn't going to be affordable, um, uh, we thought, in, in Bath. But if we make it uh, a charity, then all the roles are voluntary, so that's, that solves that problem. And because we're a social cause, uh, people will be nice to us, frankly, and uh, Wessex Water were very nice to us and, and enabled us to get started because at the very beginning I was conscious that we needed people, we needed money, but above all, we needed a place. We couldn't really start making plans and kitting it out until we actually had a place, and so getting this place was, was a really big... So we're, we're based on the lower bristol road mm-hmm. in an old wessex water building yeah 
um, which they still use to some degree. They're, they're, they're still here. Yes, you see, <laughs> hear them walking across the side of that, or some very heavy mice um, walking across the roof. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a great building. I mean, it's a, it's a modern building. Uh, it was being used by them as a store for things they didn't really need, old marketing material, etc. So very kindly they cleared that out, uh, and then uh, we had the front of it remodelled. I remember a conversation near the beginning with uh, Dave Mason and Steve talking as you know, experienced radio people are making the point that you don't actually need a radio studio these days. You can, you can broadcast from your bedroom if you want. And I said to them, it's not a radio station, it's a theatre. And they looked at me as if I was mad, and they're quite right, because what do I know? Um, but actually, the whole point of remodelling the front and painting it up and making it look something like this is that I don't mind whether you are a, a five-year-old child or the high sheriff of, of Somerset or a big business leader. When you walk through that door, you know you're in something different, hmm. something less ordinary, something quite extraordinary, in fact. Uh, and I think that's very important. I think that's, a very, that's part of the excitement for those of us who work here and, and those who visit. Well, whenever I bring anyone, because I interview every, somebody every single week, because so somebody always comes in, I feel really proud of this place. Good. Great. Um, it's, it's very smart. It's mm. very new. Everything's done very, very well. And it feels like a proper radio station. I've been to many BBC radio stations, and this is as good as them, if I'm honest with you. That's right. And, and what people uh, who have done these sorts of things, got these social enterprises or business off the ground, know that you do everything. So on the day after lockdown was released, which was July the 4th, it was released on July the 5th, Steve and I hired a truck from just up the road. We went into Wales and we gathered up a whole load of technical kit which had been left to us. Next day, we drove up to Sunderland and we emptied another radio station of all their office stuff which is what we have here as well um i've painted all these walls um, yeah. tim angel came in and very kindly helped towards the end but i have seen enough yellow and blue to last me a lifetime they're nice colors they're nice well they're, they're, they're the colors you want for a radio station basically okay. but you have to blag things as well so a friend of mine did the two big photographs that we've got on 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 the wall uh, a friend of uh, uh lorraine's actually put the stud wall in place yeah uh, so you know you, you you get i mean that's so the first few months it's it's very practical how do we get this thing off the ground and how do we then do as much of the work ourselves um and then after that it settles down and steve comes into his own as the the radio person hmm. um, because we are a, a radio station and we use radio as a vehicle for all the other things we do and lorraine in the second year was then able to do more and more of the events that took us out into the community uh, and uh, i'm hoping that we will go on playing a part in the community and perhaps giving other people perhaps those who don't have as yet much of a voice the opportunity to come in and, and gain confidence get into personal skills get something on their cv um, and just find their own voice so how does that work then so you just invite anybody in not necessarily to present i'm guessing no no the radio is it's a bit like um i remember when i used to be involved with football and um i went up to see newcastle united and they had a whole floor that was given over to workstations pcs which kids used to come into after school to to work on and it was it was the association with the football club that made that successful they could have had a pc at school or at home or anywhere like that but the fact that they were in the newcastle united football ground yeah. made it appealing so they did their homework basically um and uh, it's the same here we want to create that sort of excitement people want to come down here and try things out uh, and uh, we want to give them the opportunity but as you say we're not looking to create radio presenters out of everybody but this is all about communication yeah and it's about community as well isn't it, it being is. part of the local community not just bath but you know across the whole of this this whole southwest area i'm guessing uh, well it's certainly as far as seems um uh, a natural 
limit to it so if it goes if if we try to take it too far then what we're doing in bath won't have the relevance that mm. it needs to have so there will be a natural size for it but then hopefully we'll help other people replicate the model and, and take it up themselves so being a radio dj presenter then oh i love it when you say that I know, i'm a radio dj presenter and it's i've got on, the voice now it's on listen, you've got a nice deep voice oh, yeah. i, I realize my voice on uh, on radio is <laughs> slightly higher than it sometimes is. i know but you have got a face for tv you see whereas i've got the face for radio <laughs> so we we, we we win and lose on various things it'll be all right either way um so how long have you been presenting for then pretty much since we started here okay yeah so, so you're new to the whole station of november 2020 yeah and how did you feel when you first kind of opened up the microphone well i'm, I'm not someone who you'd say would be shy and i'm used to public speaking although i do get terrified of public speaking i just make myself do it um uh, yeah it was hard because uh, it was very exciting but i was thinking oh my goodness i've got to speak now for well i need to speak for at least 10 seconds and and that would be very difficult trying to sort of generate something uh, to talk about in between tracks now of course it gets a little little easier yeah um, so I, th- I can i certainly think i've, I've progressed I've, i'm nowhere near uh, polished or as uh, slick as certain people i know well but, you have uh, to tell me who they are <laughs> <laughs> now you used to have a show i believe it was thursdays at 10 o'clock what happened to that show what, whatever <laughs> happened to, and you're, you're now back on that show so one of the one of the things you have to do is just occasionally just have to recognize it's time to hand <laughs> over you know uh, there are better people around for that uh, it's because i got the job as well um and uh, i have a full-time job now so uh, doing any radio work is is i now know what it's like for other people who've got uh, jobs and, and coming in it's it's hard to find the time for and yet it's still something that i i enjoy doing so when do you present now then so i do a show on friday mornings um and, and again perhaps in time that will become available as well because there's nothing i don't think i'm doing anything special for that show occasionally i sort of interview people the good and the great around the area so it's nice to have you know mayors on or um leaders of councils and things but uh, uh generally speaking it's a, as an ordinary sort of show uh, the, the show i do enjoy doing which reflects the time i spent in the foreign office in my life generally is the travel show which i do on saturday mornings what time's that just That's so people want to listen 10 to 12 now i'll be honest with Mm. we were speaking about dot earlier yeah okay and she actually turned around and she went i don't actually get to listen to your show anymore because i have to go to a certain club that i'm going to and it happens to be at that point but i really like listening to simon's travel show (laughs) and at that that point there i I decided that she no longer existed for me i know i know she's gone well that means i've got one person listening oh no no, two i do know another person (laughs) Uh, um yeah it's it's just that travel is one of those things that a bit like music i suppose um is who, who who doesn't enjoy stories about other places you either want to go there or you've been there or you might never get there but it's still interesting to hear about different climes and different um, people different cultures yeah absolutely now when i'm interviewing somebody i always do quite a lot of prep that's mm. kind of the way in which i work and when i teach on stage and I, i'm a dance teacher normally i don't do that much prep because i've been doing it for a long long time being radio you know i'm still relatively new to it to some degree so i still do quite a lot of prep what kind of prep would you do for an interview on the travel show for instance um less so in some ways because uh, i mean certainly on the friday show i do no prep at all partly because i don't have time and it shows i'm afraid on the travel show my partner davina does a huge amount of research both for the news stories and also teeing up interviews i've got one this afternoon uh, where i talked to a, a travel company uh, it's not particularly difficult though it's not like i'm trying to get under their skin and and uh, they soon realize that they can pretty much tell us what they want to tell us i ask them not to be too commercial or too yeah. sort of promoting the business so they'll come on and they'll talk about you know holiday 
holidays in Croatia, etc., and uh, places you might want to go, things you want to see, and maybe a few tips about you know what to do or not to do when you're there. Okay. Uh, so it's it's relatively straightforward. And how do you get the guests? Because I was looking again. I call it research, but hmm. other people call it stalking. Um, <laughs> is uh, you know you've interviewed actually back in the day a few quite a few people that are really interesting as well, like the uh, chap from the um, sh- their show. I can't think what it's called now. The TV presenter. I can't think of his name now. Um, the TV presenter, Martin Kai. Martin, yes, yeah, a chap. Yeah, yes. Yeah. How did you get? How did you get to interview him, for instance? Well, he's sort of in touch with us, so he's a fairly local. There's a local connection here. Okay. Uh, and so you know, that was that was put through. Clive Antel was another one that we we talked to, who's a local person. Um, so we like to get those local stories mm. in, uh, and of course we talked to the, the high sheriffs and all these people. The, the, uh, police and crime commissioners etc right so yes uh, and, and if i had more time i would be doing more of that yeah as well uh, but the travel show itself is is quite a big research exercise so i'm going to ask you a radio mm. dj presenter question now so being live on the radio which bits do you love and which bits do you find the most challenging ah uh, that's very that's another very good question um I, what I find is I'm either in the groove or I'm not. Okay. There are sometimes I come in, I'm particularly, you know, unprepared, and I just wing it, and it works. And there are other times when I come in, I may have even done a little bit of prep, but can I get my words out? Can I remember the links that I've got? I'm a terrible one for puns, and so you'll quite often hear me take the track uh, that's being played and play around with it. So I remember last week, for instance, on the travel thing, it said um, it was um, uh, Go West was the was the band. Uh, and... Um, uh, uh, something about sea. What's the what's the track that says um, beyond the sea? No, no. Oh, it's, 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 the, it's the verb to see. And okay. I and I, I basically said, well, if you're going east, you might not want to hear this because it was bad news about something in in the. So I will I will often and and that's about as thick as it gets really. <laughs> sometimes sometimes it's even really poor um uh, but you know I, I will play around with those sorts of things uh, sometimes and do you have that moment where you kind of open up the fader and then go i don't know what i'm going to say all the time <laughs> all the time although i am getting quicker at it i mean it used to be that i could sit staring at the fader and the, and the mic for minutes and not know what i was going to say now if i throw open a fader i know just to sort of jump in and, and say something and and then i surprise myself about where yeah. i end up now one of the games i used to play with my children we used to play this in the car is we used to do hit the lyrics right okay so for those that aren't aware in radio dj land uh, you have the introduction to a song okay and you don't know necessarily how long that is in, yeah. in modern technology it often tells you but uh, but quite often you don't know how long it is so you could have 15 seconds until the actual singer starts yeah. singing and as a radio dj back in smashy and nighty days you would hit the lyrics so you're just trying to talk and then stop when the lyrics have started have you ever tried to do that i have tried to do it and uh, we do have markers on some of the tracks but not enough no um uh, so you know how difficult it is i don't try to be too clever to be honest i would love to have more time there are things that you do there are things that nick day for instance does and a few other uh, and, and dave mason of course and other more experienced people do and i thought oh I'd, I'd, I'd like to know how to do that i wouldn't necessarily do it all the time but i'd like to um but i then realized uh, talking to steve that there are fashions uh, he, mm. he actually doesn't particularly like people talking over the um intro um because he thinks the listener wants to hear that and and some of the intros are are classics in themselves so yeah. you know I, I get that so i don't try to be too clever no. um <laughs> I do it sometimes, just just for fun. Yeah. Um, we might try and do it, not right now. <laughs> no, I'm going right to give you a little bit of warning. Okay. okay I'll give you a little bit of prep, but we might be doing it okay. when we come back. But uh, we will see. I we think I will a... demonstrate the limitations of my DJ experience. We, we might both have a go. You never yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have a little break for adverts. When we come back, we'll be talking more with Simon. 
The Nursery Hilberton, proud sponsor of the morning show. They have all. There's somebody else's guy by Jocelyn Brown then. So we're back with Simon, <laughs> which is all good. Now, I've had a quick question in from Richard. He says, were you involved in the setting up of the one-way system in BOA during COVID? Oh, thank you for that one. I thought that one would come yeah. out there. Um, yes, to a large extent. What happened was that uh, Wiltshire Council uh, were suggesting that we as a town council ought to have a way of protecting people. So it wasn't intended as a one-way system. It was intended as a way to enable people to cross safely across the bridge without yeah. coming into COVID distance and and they would only do it that way with lights uh, and we said so we either as a council said we're not having a COVID proof system in town or we're having the one that Wiltshire Council has insisted that we have right. so we were we, we decided we would have to do that uh, but what I said was at the time this looks like a hammer to crack a nut hmm. um, and that uh, we would have data capture uh, cameras and things in place when they put it in that was the thing that they didn't plan to do because I said if we're going to have to go through this process we should learn as much as possible uh, about how the traffic flows well as everyone knows it got jammed really quickly on, yeah. the, on the one-way system funny enough um, afterwards a, a lot of people thought that was a, an attempt to introduce a one-way system it wasn't it was purely a covid measure and as people saw afterwards it was taken away um, now we'd removed the lights well before then um, and uh, so it was it was flowing as a one-way system and at that stage a lot of people said actually we quite like the one-way system we just don't want the lights over the over the bridge yeah so I did try to hold it in place, knowing that it was imperfect on the grounds that uh, it would force Wiltshire Council to work with us to improve it and get it right. Uh, but for reasons, I, I don't know, um, the council at the time, because we were, we were now in the minority, decided to let that go and um, and it was taken away and now of course we're, we're, we're paying to have it reinstated or at least to have some work done on my. On I was going to say we've got the wonderful world of Staverton being shut at the moment yeah. which is causing so many issues I had to go to Holt yesterday and I live in Hilberton in Trowbridge yeah. uh, it was 2.6 miles away from my house it was a 45 minute round trip Yeah, um, and, and the one thing I mean I'm very passionate about the, the traffic and, and, and we're always being forced by uh, others Wiltshire and, and the traffic people to focus on that particular stretch of road I have been saying for years that the much much bigger problem is the fact that uh, Bradford and Avon is used as a rat run by mm. people coming from the south and the north. And what we need to do is to actually deter people from t using it as a shortcut yeah. uh, and keep people on the A36 or, or the A46 or the A4, whatever it is. I know those are imperfect as well, but it's not right that we as a town bear the brunt of, of what is a, a very convenient cut through for people who have got no interest in Bradford and Avon other than getting through as quickly as possible. Now, if I had one thing, we're going to move on this very quickly in a minute, but if I had one thing, the one thing that bugs me more than anything else is the principle that as you're going through the centre and you're going up the hill or down the hill, you've got the chequered parts and people think that you can't go onto there until it's clear, which isn't the case. Uh, you well, can fit two cars past. I entirely agree with you. Uh, there are a lot of people driving very uh, very small cars who don't really understand, or people <laughs> driving big cars who don't, you know. I mean, it, it does take two people, but you do need to slow down. Yes. Because going up onto the pavement is not right. And one of the things that uh, we said to them when we did have that experimental system with the COVID side was that the hash box, the yellow ones, is the wrong signal mm. for the road. That is, when you're not allowed to enter unless it's clear at the other side or if you're turning right, etc. Yeah. That isn't what that's designed for. If you go to places like like Maiden Bradley, they have priority one direction or another. Biddeston has them as well. Yeah. I don't see why we can't have those. Um, but you're quite right. If you drive carefully 
and you're not just trying to career down the pavements, um, it's perfectly possible to you get two cars. Two cars through. Yeah. Everybody remember that. Right, we're going to move on to you being an author. So you've got how many books that you've had? Uh, eight. Eight books. And what yeah. have they generally been about then? Well, most of them, seven of them, are been about places where I've sort of um, uh, done some photographs and some uh, history about the places. Uh, so they're sort of like uh, travel books or tourist books, if you like. And I did four in London. Um, and then I've done three outside. So I've done one on Bristol, one on Bath, and one on Cambridge, actually. Okay. Um, and then the, fourth, the, the, the eighth one was one that I published myself. It was a collection. I came across a, uh, uh, the records of a, a World War I uh, hospital in London, and uh, many of the men and some of the uh, nurses had written poems, as they did in, in the First World War, and I retrieved what I thought were the best 37 of them, and I used it to tell the story of the war, the, 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 the uh, guilt that many of the men felt for being wounded and coming back and therefore safe uh, from the war uh, the uh, life of the hospital if you like um, and other poems were hopes for the future um, and I interpreted that and published that and that's what got me really connected to Safa because I decided I would set, donate the proceeds to and Safa is the armed forces charity, the armed forces charity so that I work for earlier. yeah yeah okay amazing and Ron Elam is it Ron Elam yeah he was a great guy um, the, the the format for the books in London were uh, you have a take an old photograph and i would then go and match it um, as closely as i could so you're looking at the street scene a hundred years apart okay um, and then just say where it was and what was interesting about the um, the street scene and i had to do about 96 pairs of those for the book the first time i did it i had to go to the uh, local uh, history center and i had to sort of pay uh, to the copyright of those old photos when i met ron for the second one he had a collection of twenty-seven thousand postcards so this is what ron did for the book so this is what no, ron provided uh, we would go through and work uh, work through in a particular area like battersea or putney or something We'd identify the photographs, the postcards he had. We'd choose the best 96 or so, and I would then go out and match them and, uh, and, and interpret them. Okay. Yeah. So would you class yourself as an historian then? Um, in, in the, yes, I think I am. I mean, I'm doing a thesis at Cambridge, so, um, right. you know, uh, on, on military history. So I, I guess that's, that counts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's very much an amateur historian. You know, it's very much uh, something I've come into uh, a little later in life. Of course, when I was doing uh, international relations and politics in my first degree um, at Dundee, um, that was current affairs but now that would be considered history as well so <laughs> wait long enough wait long enough it all comes around so do you reckon there's a like a period that gets undervalued or under kind of thought about certainly in the military anyway yeah there are lo- i mean there are lots of obvious things that we do sort of uh, look at um uh, obviously you know a lot of us have, look- have looked at elizabethan period that was a great period of, of, of that we've probably done less on some parts of the georgian although of course here in bath we're very much a georgian city hmm. uh, so i think and also we we uh, understand it from our own particular country, but you know what, what was happening in in, uh, in Turkey, for instance, at the time that we had Shakespeare. You know, so uh, yeah. there's so much more to uncover. It's it's endlessly illuminating. Uh, and what I like to what I've done with my work is is interpret it, find original resources that haven't really been brought to anyone's attention before, and show why they're important. So my my um, my big uh, sort of talking point when I'm talking about Safa is that we could not have won World War One without Safa. Okay, that's a big statement to put out. I then have to spend twenty minutes justifying it, but but I will I will stand by that. Well, we don't have twenty. We don't minutes. have twenty. We've got, we've got <laughs> I know your 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 depleting number of uh, of listeners are saying no. thank goodness for that. <laughs> we've got we've got fourteen minutes left, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but regarding history, and I I kind of think about this in regards to 
people say hindsight is a wonderful thing mm. okay i have a different word for hindsight i call it experience yeah um history is experience and history is therefore hindsight and we still often make the same mistakes over and over again so how as an historian do you feel like we could actually develop our future by looking at the history well, I, I think the I don't think history repeats itself. I don't think it it does that. So, but there are always lessons that can be learned. One of the uh, uh, complaints that I sometimes hear by more knowledgeable people about our, our current leaders, for instance, not just in this country, is that very few of them have a strong understanding or sense of history. Mm. And there is a there is a, a feeling that we walk into situations which uh, we might have learned from previous ones and and done slightly better. So I, I don't think it will prevent. Uh, situations but it can provide uh, a, a useful measures and tools um, when you look back okay now we are very rapidly running out of time we've had another question in from richard and he says what type of motorbike do you ride i'm sorry it's a really sort of vanilla motorbike um it's the first one i had it's a a CB600. A CB, Honda a, CB600. A Honda Hornet, yes. That's all right. That's, That's all right. right. <laughs> but I have ridden it to Germany and back on one, in one day. Uh, to Germany in one day and back in the end. And it was really, and it was in winter. It was in November. And oh my goodness, was I cold. That is cold. Yeah, but I'm not much, I'm not, I'm not a very experienced motorcyclist. Now, before the break, we spoke about hitting the lyrics. Okay, I've lined up a track. I've lined up the Go West track. We close <laughs> our eyes. I actually remembered what it was. It's yeah. close your eyes, wasn't it? We yeah. close our eyes. So yeah. that's, that's a track. Okay, okay, so we're going to give this a go. Now, do you want to try and do this solo? Or do you want to do it? I think we do this together. Definitely. You want to do this together. So the principle is for those who haven't heard. So we've we worked it out. We've got twenty-two seconds. Mm-hmm. So we're going to try and fill, and at the very p- last part, it'll be and here is that track type thing. So uh, so we're going to play the track and let's uh, see. I haven't got a clock, so I'm really going to have to sort of just wing well, it. You have to listen. I will have to listen. You have to yeah. listen, and but we're going to have to you, chat. You can do. We'll have to chat. So Ooh. there we go. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll <laughs> break. And then we're back with a quick fire round. Okay. okay. So here we go. So this is the track. So here is We Close Our Eyes by Go West. What do you think about this track, Simon? I love it, and that was the one I couldn't remember because I then very cleverly said, if you're going east, you might want to close your ears. Oh, but close that, your ears rather than closing yeah, you your see, eyes. Oh, no. I get all of that. Well, you're here on Radio Bath. I'm here until 12 o'clock today. Coming up after me is Dave. And you've done a great job, actually, because I think this is just about where we step back, isn't it? So we're back. It's our final time with Simon. Nearly done two hours, Simon. How are you doing? That's been wonderful. It's flown by. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. It goes, it goes by so quickly. Yeah. I need to be on here for four hours chatting to people. There we go. Right, it's time for the quick fire round then. Mm-hmm. Okay, so everybody gets to know what the first question is. So, Simon, what is your favourite ice cream? I really wanted to say something like um, pistachio and marmite or something. But okay. uh, actually, and this is very pretentious, Hornbeck ice just north of Copenhagen, right. do a fabulous uh, uh, mango sorbet. And that's my favourite. You couldn't have sounded posher if you tried I, I know, I think so. Just elevate this uh, at the end of the show here, you know. I know you've had some riffraff on previously, you know. <laughs> that's Stephen Lorraine people. That's I know, I know. I don't know where you find them. No, I know. So, mango sorbet. Mango sorbet. Okay, that's, I'll be honest with you, not an ice cream. Oh, come on. Okay, mango ice cream then. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go back to pistachio marmite then. Pistachio, there, is, there can't a, be a pistachio marmite. I think there's a gap in the market, isn't it? But as I say, is there a market in the gap? I, I love pistachio, I love marmite. I'm not sure You're, I want the 
the combo of the two. I tell you what, if you're going to make me jump out of a plane, I'm going to make you try that ice cream. I will try that. <laughs> I will absolutely try that. Right, question number two. Are you tidy or messy? Incredibly messy. Are you? Uh, okay. Yeah, um, very quick to open that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's creativity. I'm justifying it as creativity like everybody does, but I am just messy. I've got so many things on the go. Uh, and I do tend to know where things are, uh, but it's always fun, you know, when you actually need something in 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, no, I had the pleasure this morning. My, my daughter needed her coat, mm-hmm. and uh, I was told it was up in the loft, and I was like, I know the loft is a complete mess, but I know it's not there. Okay. And I then found it somewhere else. But it was like, yeah, you could be messy, but you still know where things are. Yeah, we yeah, should, yeah. absolutely. Love or hate roller coasters? Um, I quite love them, actually. I like anything with adrenaline thrills. Okay. I, I've done the world's biggest bungee jump, for instance, and tell where was that then? i was in south africa off a bridge in south africa at 8 30 in the morning with a client okay. i don't know what i was trying to prove but i have got the video to prove it so Do you? Yeah. was it a double bungee or was it no, a no, just on my own just yeah. on your own uh it was uh 700 plus feet right so it's about one and a half times the london eye and how was your heart rate at the top um yeah pretty they say don't look down so of course what do you do look down yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a bit like when you say don't think about pink elephants i was bungee jumping with a pink elephant uh, we got so fast going down uh, actually the air was rushing by so quickly you almost like going down through a, a, a straw a tube because okay. uh, the air became opaque right yeah yeah amazing and would you do another bungee jump? Yeah, quite happily, but I don't I don't get the buzz of I'd want to do that hundreds of times. Okay. Um, but certainly, you know, I'm happy to do a bungee jump, I'm happy to do most of these things. But there are some other things I haven't done, so you know, okay. but skydiving next year with myself. Absolutely in the diary. And the pink elephant. And the pink elephant, don't yeah. forget that. Yeah. Uh, do you hang your toilet roll over the top or behind the back? There's only one way to do this, because I have actually been a historian, I have seen the patent. Okay. The original patent design, and it clearly comes over the front. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the only that, way. That is what the inventor intended. Okay. I don't think he was being too prescriptive. So you know this. Yeah. Okay. And do you go around other people's houses? And if it's round the other way, do you flip it round? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not that sort of. It's other people's houses. It's their choice. You know, I, I'm, I wouldn't say that I feel the need to go correcting other people's. It's, it's a free world when it comes to toilet roll. It is a free world. However, I do it. Um, do you <laughs> eat your chocolate? <laughs> Who's interviewing you here? <laughs> do you eat your chocolate from the fridge or from the cupboard? Uh, usually from the cupboard. I like it. To, it's supposed to be um, uh, skin temperature, isn't it? Chocolate when you I eat don't it. Know. Yeah, it, it, that's why it melts so gently on your skin. Right. So that is actually, I mean, obviously, if you're in a hot place, you don't have much choice, but it gets a bit brittle and you have to sort of work it in your mouth to get it back up to temperature. Okay. okay. So it's meant to be skin temperature. I'm learning something new every day. That's why we have this. I think it's one of the reasons why we have this fondness for chocolate is that it's it's something at, at okay. human body temperature. Absolutely amazing. Uh, do you make your bed in the morning? No. <laughs> No, not even, we've got a duvet, of course, like most people do. And, um, you know, even the duvet, it doesn't get pulled up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, now, what is your favourite breakfast? Uh, funny enough, it would probably be some form of porridge with, uh, with perhaps some fruit on it or something. Okay, that sounds but, healthy. It, uh, I like porridge, yes. I, and it is healthy, of course, as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Porridge is, uh, along with full English breakfast porridge is the most popular answer is it okay. yeah I, I, well there you go but it has to be made i make it from scratch you know i mean i don't grow the oats myself but i i i, I mix it all together i don't buy the ready-made ones okay so you're not a quaker person uh, no again i've been there but uh, i think it's much nicer when you do it yourself okay amazing yeah. now we've kind of answered this question earlier mm-hmm. but if you had to what would be your go-to karaoke song oh goodness well one that i could sing so it might be um uh the um what's it brothers and uh 
Oh My Love and uh, Unchained Melody. Unchained Melody. I think that is one I could just about bluff my way through. Okay, very quickly, because we're running out of time. Yeah. Are you going to give us a rendition? No. No, fair enough. <laughs> uh, if you came back in your next life as an animal, which one would you be and why? Well, it wouldn't be a cat. Yay! Yeah, no more cats. Um, I'm, do you know? I'm almost tempted to change it, except you, for being a cat. Exactly, you can't be a cat. But then you're depriving people, I guess, of, of, of what they want to be. I would like to be a bonobo chimp. Okay, go on. <laughs> so bonobo chimps, uh, like the common chimp, are the two closest uh, relations to, to the human. Right. Bonobos have a very egalitarian society. It's often led by a woman, uh, and uh, everyone shares in the decisions. And when there's a problem, whether somebody gets aggressive or there's some anger or misery or something, uh, they just have sex. Okay. Yeah, they, they, they distract each other with that. What better idea I could can't you think have? of anything if you're in the jungle. And your last question, Simon, where is your happy place? My happy place is... Uh, well, there's a place up in Scotland, uh, Lake of Menteith, which is where I'm from, and it's very restful, and I love to go and sit on the side of the lake. There's an island there which had uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, was, uh, was held as a, as a, um, uh, to escape Henry VIII, and it's just very peaceful. Um, it's where my stepfather's ashes are scattered, uh, and it's also a place where we have bonspiels, so they, it freezes every sort of 20 years, and then people go and play massive amounts of curling and uh, oh. ice skating on, so it's really, really restful. Sounds like a beautiful place mm. to be. Simon, thank you so much for coming on A Story to Tell. I hope you've enjoyed it today. Very much so, very much so. Thank Fabulous. you for having me.